Want to hear a nutrition detective story? In this episode, we'll tell the tale of a nutritional deficiency disease's four Ds and the crazy story of how, after hundreds of years, the cure was found. I'm Professor Megan. I'm Professor Susan. And we're your Your nutrition nutrition profs. We are registered dietitians and college professors who have taught more than 10,000 students about health and nutrition. We have answered a lot of questions about nutrition over the years. Some questions we get asked every year, and some are rarely asked, but very interesting. We are here to share our answers to these common and uncommon nutrition questions with you. So bring your curiosity and let's get started. Welcome Welcome to to our class. Welcome, everyone. Today, instead of answering a specific question, we're going to tell you a medical detective story, a story that includes the Red Death, filth parties, and our heroes, determined doctors and scientists. Oh, I do love a good mystery. Me too. (laughs) Okay, so let's set the stage. Picture the early 1900s in the South, Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, and South Carolina. It's been about 40 years since the end of the Civil War. Reconstruction in the South is really, really difficult. Their infrastructure has been completely destroyed. So cities, towns, railroads, all in rubble. The fields are full of weeds and their economic system has crashed and they have to remake it. Cotton is still the major cash crop, although prices were really low. And former slaves work as tenant farmers or sharecroppers. Textile mills, tobacco factories, and mining were starting to take over farmlands, and landlords and factory owners prospered and made lots of money. But there was dire poverty for regular people. By 1900, per capita income in the South was 40% less than the national average. For a few hundred years in Southern Europe and the Mediterranean, there had been reports of an illness called mal de rosa, or red death characterized by red, roughened skin with lesions resembling a severe sunburn, primarily on the hands and feet, diarrhea, cognitive issues or dementia, and these only occurred in the poor. And typically in the summer, it cleared up in the winter, and many, many people died of this condition. An Italian doctor coined the name pellagra from the Italian words for skin, pele, and rough, agra, agra. Is it agra or agra? In Italian, it would be agra. And rough, agra. (laughs) Symptoms of pellagra primarily affect the skin, the gastrointestinal system, and the nervous system, specifically the brain. And there are what's called the four Ds of pellagra. Dermatitis, which is the skin condition, diarrhea, dementia, and death. As a dietitian, I don't think I've ever seen an actual case of pellagra, Megan. Have you? You know, I actually have seen one case while working as a clinical dietitian in a fairly urban hospital. I can't recall the specific reason that she was there, but I remember seeing her in the ICU and 
her skin looked really bad, specifically her forearms and sort of part of her neck. Um, mm. She had really dark skin color, and so it almost was it was so red it was almost brown oh. and like peeling. Um, she was diagnosed with severe alcohol use disorder and anorexia nervosa. And so she had several different deficiencies. But this is honestly the only time I've ever seen um, an up-close case. Oh, it's awful. I'm glad we don't see this often in the United States anymore. Me too. So let's get back to our detective story. European doctors were stumped by this pellagra. Why is it only in the poor? How come it only happens in the summer? And why, why do so many people die? Why is it so fatal? So they really worked hard to try to figure out the cause because then they hoped they could find a cure. About 100 years later, in 1869, and an, another Italian physician made the first link between pellagra and corn. He made a watery and alcoholic extract of damaged corn, and then he fed that to people. Oh. <laughs> yeah. They got, guess what? They got pellagra. <laughs> So his hypothesis was that a toxin was formed when certain fungi grew on the corn, and he called this toxin pelagrazin. Pelagrazian? Pelagrazian, that's how I'd say it. Pelagrazian. And he thought that that was the cause of pellagra. His hypothesis was a toxin as the cause, but was it? In the U.S., there have been reported cases of pellagra since the 1820s, but they were fairly rare. But by the early 1900s, pellagra became epidemic, especially in the South. It was actually dubbed the scourge of the South. Doctors were seeing the same symptoms the Southern Europeans reported almost 100 years previously, the four Ds, dermatitis, diarrhea, dementia, and often death. Enter our first American doctor detective, Dr. George H. Searcy. So it's 1906. Dr. Searcy is working for a place called Mount Vernon, and this was an Alabama hospital for what was at that time called the Colored Insane. Now, this place was near Mobile, Alabama. Every summer for the previous five years, there'd been a couple of patients who developed symptoms of pellagra, red irritated skin with lesions in one or more locations, disturbances of the digestive tract, and dementia. And most of these early cases were fatal. But in the fall of 1906, this number greatly increased to 88 patients. 90% were women. Why? The patients were not starving. They were consuming adequate calories. But 57 of these patients died. That's a 64% mortality rate. Wow, that's really high. That's really high. Pellagra was epidemic in the patient population and completely non-existent in the staff. Wow. Not one staff member at Mount Vernon developed the condition. That's so crazy. I know. So Dr. Searcy, he was working really hard to try to figure out this thing, like what was causing it. So he read everything he could find about pellagra, including the work of those Italians that we mentioned earlier. And he was really, really trying to determine the cause of this terrible, terrible affliction. So he considered the food the patients were eating. He thought, well, maybe it's the food. So he sent a typical meal fed to the patients to a pathologist in Washington, D.C. And he wanted the pathologist to see if it did contain that Pelagrazian toxin that the Italians postulated was the cause. So he got the information back from the pathologist, and the pathologist basically said 
this meal is made of moldy grain and it contained quantities of bacteria and fungi of various sorts. And he said, quote, it is wholly unfit for human use, end quote. Wow. That sounds awful. That's terrible. So the food was awful, but he, the pathologist did not find the Pelagrasian toxin that he was looking for. So there was no toxin. The food was terrible. There must be something bad in the food, but what? So they kept looking and kept looking, but unfortunately, they also kept feeding this terrible food to the patients in the asylum. They continued to get pellagra. So Circe also considered exposure to sunlight as a cause because the red lesions were most commonly found on their hands and feet, but lots of people who didn't get pellagra also had the same sun exposure. So he said, it's probably not the sun that causes pellagra. In April 1907, Searcy presented his findings at the annual meeting of the Medical Association of the State of Alabama, and he ended with, quote, It is generally accepted now, however, that pellagra is caused by eating a substance formed by the growth of certain organisms in corn. This substance attacks the central nervous system and the chemical rays of the sun influence, more or less, the severity of the lesions in those regions, which are exposed to sun, end quote. He reported that the prognosis for those afflicted was unfavorable. Remember, that death rate is high at 64%. Unfavorable. That just, that's a nice way to say really bad. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't want my doctor to be like, well, it's unfavorable. Yeah, survival <laughs> is unfavorable. <laughs> but he also determined that there's no treatment other than good hygiene, good food, and tonics like arsenic, hmm. iron, and pepsin preparation. So he rules out the sun as the cause, but it may make the condition worse. And he seems to agree with the Italians that something in damaged corn is the cause. But also, what's up with the arsenic? I know, that's kind of crazy, isn't it? Well, I did a little bit of research, and apparently at that time, tinctures that were made from substances like arsenic and cyanide, they weren't that uncommon as treatments for various conditions. I wonder how that contributed to the, the high death rate. If at all. That's a good question. I don't know. It wasn't clear. But back to pellagra. In the early 1900s, the diet of poor Southerners contained adequate calories, but consisted of what was called the three M's. So meat, but usually it's not meat like we think of it. It's usually just a small amount of pork fat. Meal, as in cornmeal, and molasses, the three M's. And risk factors, which are things that make you more likely to develop pellagra, were being poor, working hard labor jobs, and high sun exposure. Some doctors agreed with Dr. Searcy that the cause was something bad in the corn, but others, like the eugenicists, <laughs> yeah, suggested that race or hereditary factors were the cause because pellagra was found almost exclusively in the poor, including minorities. But we know that is definitely not the case. Definitely not what causes pellagra. But others thought it was spread by vermin because there are lots of rats and mice around as well. 
But by far the most commonly accepted theory at that time was that of germ theory. There must be some pellagra germ that's causing this illness. So in the early 1900s, most of the medical breakthroughs had been related to bacterial or parasitic agents that were infectious. And a lot of Southern doctors were just sure that this was the cause with pellagra. Cases of pellagra continued to rise. In 1912, South Carolina reported at least 30,000 cases with a 40% mortality rate. Things are serious. State commissions were set up to study the condition carefully. Most of these commissions determined it was an infectious germ that caused it, although they couldn't identify it. So Congress got involved and asked the Surgeon General of the U.S. to investigate pellagra. So enter our second doctor detective, Joseph Goldberger. Joseph Goldberger was a New York City-born Yankee and Jew. He worked for the U.S. Public Health Service's Hygienic Laboratory, and eventually that became the National Institutes of Health, or NIH. He was a really gifted doctor and researcher. For the past 15 years, he'd been studying epidemics all over the world, and he had figured out the causes of things like yellow fever, typhoid fever, typhus, dengue fever, and diphtheria. Wow. Yeah. That's, he did, oh my gosh. Rockstar detective. Absolutely. And I'm glad he's on the case. That's right. He'd also studied how typhus and measles were transmitted from person to person to better understand infection. So the Surgeon General sent him to the South in 1914 to fight the pellagra epidemic. So he spent most of 1914 and 1950 observing. He traveled throughout the South, taking notes, asking questions, and watching. And 1914 through 1915 were really bad years. There was a massive crop failure and economic downturn, thrusting many into severe dietary restriction, which caused more pellagra. Goldberger noted that pellagra victims consumed the 3M's diet of the impoverished. Remember, small amounts of cheap, fatty meat, cornmeal, and molasses. His theory, the disease is not infectious, but is a matter of something missing in the diet. So that's unusual, right? Because germ theory is like there's there's a bug that's causing it. He's saying something's missing. Something's missing. To test his theory and rule out infectious transmission, he began experiments at institutions like orphanages, asylums, and prisons, which are all relatively controlled environments. In institutions that had really high rates of pellagra, he fed people more varied diets that included things like fresh eggs, milk, peas, and oatmeal. When he did that, guess what? Rates of pellagra plummeted. Some asylum inmates saw their dementia get so much better that they were actually discharged. Wow. Wow. He did another experiment at a Mississippi prison farm. I'm imagining a place like in the movie Cool Hand Luke. I do love that movie. I I do too. (laughs) I love the hard-boiled egg scene. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Well, there were no pellagra cases at this prison farm. Inmates were asked to volunteer for the experiment in exchange for a full pardon. That was not very uncommon back then, but of course, nowadays, we would never do that. Yeah. It's considered coercive, unethical. We uh, don't... darn. Yeah, we don't, we don't go to orphanages or <laughs> places anymore. Yeah, yeah. But um. back to this study, a dozen inmate volunteers were isolated in super clean cells to eliminate all chances of infection. 
And to test the idea of something missing in the diet, they were fed a typical poor Southern diet, biscuits, gravy, grits, syrup. They could eat as much of these things as they wanted. Within months, all of the volunteers got pellagra. The symptoms were so bad that one moaned, I have been through a thousand hells. (laughs) Another allegedly asked to be shot. Oh my God, it must have been awful. (laughs) Other inmates in the prison ate the typical diet for that institution, which because it was a farm prison included fresh vegetables, milk, and some meat. And they had no cases of pellagra. To test the infection idea, Goldberger and his team then tried to catch the disease from the sick inmates, spending a lot of time with them in very close contact, and they couldn't catch it. None of the research team got pellagra, so he concluded it's clearly not infectious. When those 12 volunteers started eating veggies, meat, and drinking milk, pellagra symptoms disappeared, just like magic. Wow. After seven months of observation, each of the 12 volunteer inmates received a pardon, $5, and a new suit. And then according to Goldberger, they fled like rabbits from the prison. (laughs) I I think I would have too. I would too. So these experiments convinced Goldberger that he was right. It's a problem with the diet. It is not a germ. It is not infection. It's a disease of malnutrition. So how do you cure a disease of malnutrition? You help poor people get fresh food. Seems like such an easy cure. Yeah, now looking back on it, it's like, of course, that's it. We should be feeding people Mm -hmm. the right food. But he couldn't convince the Southern medical establishment or local politicians that he was right. They were still convinced that it was caused by a germ. Understandably, They sure didn't like some uninvited Yankee sent from the federal government criticizing their entire economic system and their entire way of life. I get it. You don't like somebody getting all up in your business that's not from (laughs) where you live. At the same time Goldberger was doing his work, another doctor detective, Dr. Carl A. Grote, was conducting his own observations in mining camps in Walker County, Alabama. After the Civil War, mining became a much bigger part of the Southern economy, but only mine owners got rich. Mine workers were very poor. There were two mining camps controlled by the same corporation only a quarter mile apart. Camp A housed the skilled workers, let's say middle class folks, the company officials, the bookkeepers, clerks, and this included skilled white and black miners imported from northern states who probably served as supervisors. Those living in Camp A often had their own livestock, so they had access to fresh meat, eggs, and dairy, and enough money to buy other fresh foods. No cases of pellagra in Camp A. Camp B, just down the road, was made up entirely of poor, white, native Alabamans. Alabamians? Alabamians. Alabamians. They had left their farms to come to the camp for work in the mines. When they came to work in the mines, they sold their livestock and they only had access to the foods they could afford at the camp commissary. They ended up buying the cheapest foods and they lived almost entirely on breads, molasses, very fatty meat, and brown gravy made from lard and flour. They also drank black coffee, but that was pretty much it. These workers, they were unskilled, very poor, And the change in their lifestyle from the farm to the mine put many into severe poverty. Pellagra was very common in Camp B. 
both camps bought their food from the same store and used the same type of bathroom facilities. These results were replicated in several different mining camps controlled by different corporations throughout Alabama. So why was there a difference in the prevalence of pellagra in Camp A and Camp B? Well, Dr. Grote concluded three things. Number one, the disease was not racial or hereditary in nature. Black miners in Camp A had no pellagra. Take that. Absolutely. Number two, there was a direct correlation between available income and incidence of pellagra. And three, diet offers the most likely explanation for cause of pellagra and cure, not infection, since the workers from the two camps spent quite a bit of time together. They worked together side by side in the mines. And Camp A, still no pellagra. Camp B, lots of pellagra. So both the northerner Goldberger and the southerner Grote agreed that the poor diet of the impoverished is to blame for pellagra and improving the circumstances of the poor to enable them to consume a healthier diet would reduce this suffering. So what happened? Well, as we mentioned earlier, politicians and the medical establishment were still clinging to germ theory. They were still convinced it was an infection even though both Goldberger and Grote had disproven that as a cause. In the meantime, patients were dying because they were not receiving the right treatment for their conditions. Goldberger was getting super upset that no one would listen to him, so he resorted to drastic measures to finally disprove the infection theory. He threw filth parties. That is something I do not want to be invited to. (laughs) Me either. So here's what he did. He would take poop, urine, and blood samples and scrapings of the scabs on the skin from pellagra patients, and he would give them to his party guests. He would mix all of these samples with flour or cracker crumbs and make like little dumplings, or he would mix them with water and inject them with it. The uh, third thing he might do is swab the inside of their noses with the samples. That's terrible. I know. It's just, it's that's gross. A, that's a hard pass. Yeah. <laughs> he hosted eight parties in the spring eight. of in the spring of 1916, 17 guests total. Most of the guests were fellow doctors, but his wife did it too. <laughs> the men wouldn't let her swallow the stuff, but she convinced Goldberger to inject her abdomen with blood from pellagra victims. That is marital devotion and supreme confidence in your spouse. Oh my gosh, yeah. According to one source, the nurse assisting Goldberger was so sure it was a suicidal act that she fainted. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Goldberger later exclaimed, quote, if anyone ever got pellagra, we should certainly have it good and hard. We just feasted on filth, end quote. Six months after the parties ended in late 1916, there had been no signs of pellagra in any of the party guests, including his wife. The worst thing that happened to the guests was nausea. Understandable. (laughs) And Goldberger himself got diarrhea after one party. So I'm guessing this finally convinced everyone he was right. Well, some, Mm. but not all. Pellagra was a symbol of poverty, not the image the South wanted to give off. And if pellagra could be prevented or cured by paying poor people more money... 
that might mean a change in the status quo and problems for the economic system. The rich couldn't get richer. So politicians couldn't provide poverty relief because that would admit there was an actual problem. Denial is better. If there's no problem, no change is required. Instead, they blamed the victims, the pellagra victims. That sounds about right. Yeah, especially the wives and mothers. They said they were allowing their families to live with poor hygiene and bringing the disease on themselves and their families through dirty habits and ignorance. So frustrating. It is. Because of this denial, Pellagra remained the scourge of the South until the 1940s. 1940s? So that's 25 years. Wow. Between 1907 and 1940, more than 3 million Southerners developed the condition and over 100,000 of them died. Wow. In 1917, Goldberger gave up. He returned to Washington, but he kept doing research because he was determined to find what was missing from a pellagra victim's diet. He found with his research that a few cents worth of brewer's yeast could eliminate the disease entirely, but he was looking for the specific molecule, and he suspected it was a vitamin. Vitamin research was exploding in the early 1900s. From 1929 to 1939, nine Nobel Prizes were given specifically for vitamin work. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah. In 1937, a biochemist in Wisconsin finally isolated the nutrient that, when missing, causes pellagra. At the time, he called it vitamin G to honor Joseph Goldberger. But now we call it niacin, or vitamin B3. And that's why the brewer's yeast worked. It contains niacin. So the 3M diet is missing niacin? Not completely. It's complicated. Like so many things in nutrition. For sure. There is a little bit of niacin in corn, but it isn't bioavailable, meaning our bodies can't access it. It's very tightly bound to corn, so it must be pulled away before humans can use it. We know that the Aztecs had corn as a dietary staple and avoided pellagra. They used a process called nixtamalization. To unbind the niacin, you need something with a high pH, something alkaline. And they figured out if they ground the corn with wood, ashes, and water, this created alkaline water, which did the trick. They also used calcium hydroxide, called pickling lime, which did the same thing. This frees up the niacin so that humans can absorb and use it. And this process is still used today. The ground cornmeal is called masa harina, or just masa, and is the cornmeal that we use to make corn tortillas and tamales. Oh, yum. Yeah. Also, niacin is unique among vitamins because the body can also make it from the amino acid tryptophan, which is found in eggs, dairy products, fish, meats, fresh fruits and vegetables, and some nuts and seeds. That's why the more affluent people in the South did not develop pellagra. They consumed more fresh foods that contained tryptophan. Unfortunately, Joseph Goldberger died in 1929, so he didn't get to see the discovery of niacin. I know, that's That's too bad. In the 1930s and 40s, the incidence of pellagra began to decline for a number of reasons. One, Plummeting cotton prices during the Great Depression meant farmers in the South planted a wider variety of crops, including more fresh produce. Electricity spread through New Deal programs, which meant more access to refrigeration, and both of these things improved the diets of poor Southerners greatly. 
But what finally eradicated pellagra was a law passed by Congress during World War II that mandated the addition of niacin to all store-bought bread. While this exact law is no longer in place, we do have other laws about enriching flour, and one of those enriched vitamins is still niacin. So thanks to Goldberger and the other doctor detectives, it is rare to see a case of pellagra in the U.S., and it's really only seen in people who eat very limited calories or restricted diets, like those with eating disorders or or alcohol use disorder, like Megan's patient. Exactly. Goldberger's contributions have been memorialized in a display at NIH headquarters in Washington, D.C., This display includes a comic drawn in 1943 from a series called Real Life Heroes. It called him a famine fighter, and if you get to D.C., check it out. And that's the medical detective story of niacin and pellagra. It's a good reminder that scientific discovery takes time, politics are always involved, and that it takes dedicated scientists to stick with it and find the answers. Thanks for joining us today and hug a scientist. (laughs) Absolutely. Join us next time when we will answer the question, why do we get hiccups? Class Class dismissed. dismissed. We hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find the show notes and a list of sources on our website, yournutritionprofs.com. Your homework is to follow us at Your Nutrition Profs on Instagram and to listen to our next episode. You can listen on Amazon Prime, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere podcasts are found. We'd appreciate it if you'd like us, write a review, subscribe, and invite your family and friends to join us too. If you have a nutrition or health question you'd like answered, let us know. We may do a show about it. Send an email to yournutritionprofs at gmail.com or click on the Contact Us page on our website. Thanks to Brian Pittman for creating our artwork. You can find him on Instagram at Pittman 77 See you next time. time.